Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. In episode 6, we broke down the outside crime scene of the Friedley House triple homicide. Investigators had a difficult time finding and documenting any meaningful evidence. Wheelbarrow tracks and footprints that indicate someone at some time had pushed the wheelbarrow in from the wilderness area behind the house. A crumpled up business card found at least 200 yards away from Becky's body and an ink pen laying on the ground just a few feet away from her body. We have no record of them checking the path from the back door to Becky for footprints. They didn't catalog, document, photograph, or collect the majority of the evidence found inside of her car and failed to even collect the wheelbarrow as evidence. The outdoor crime scene leaves us with a lot of questions. And unfortunately, the inside crime scene was destroyed by the blaze that collapsed the house. In today's episode, we're going to see if any answers lie beneath the rubble. This is Season 12, Episode 7, The Fires. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There were two fire experts that testified at trial. Charlie DeHart was the original arson investigator, and the state later brought in an expert on burned bodies to testify as well. Her name is Dr. Elaine Pope. We're going to start off with DeHart's testimony. He's being questioned on direct by District Attorney Brandon Smith. In 2006, DeHart had been working for Cal Fire for about 20 years. At that time, he was a captain assigned as an arson investigation specialist. In his testimony, DeHart explains that at the time of the crime, he had been investigating fires for over five years, and by the time of trial, he had investigated over a thousand fires. There's no doubt that he's a well-educated and experienced investigator. And in case you're wondering, my count is around a hundred fires that I've investigated compared to his thousand. DeHart was called to our crime scene at around 10 p.m. on the night of the murders. But at the time, he was working another fire scene down in the valley, so he didn't arrive on the Friedley House scene until around 2 a.m. When he arrived, the first thing that he did was participate in a briefing with other members of Cal Fire and members of the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. 
And he says that his fire investigation and the police investigation started simultaneously. DeHart worked on investigating the crime scene from 2 a.m. until around 5 p.m. on September 18th, and then returned to the scene about eight days later, which is when he pointed out to the police that the pen was still on the ground. DeHart worked his investigation in the same way that I would have. He started with a walk around the house and then began looking and documenting from the area of least damage working towards the areas with the heaviest damage. This is a common method of investigation because your first job is to determine the point of origin of the fire. You start from the outside and work your way in, basically because you're trying to eliminate areas of ignition, places where the fire didn't start. In this case, he started in the garage. He noted that there was very little to no damage in the ground floor of the garage. There isn't even any charring on the ceiling. He also notes some fuel containers that he thought looked out of place near the workbench. Then he discusses the electrical box. DeHart notes that a few of the breakers are tripped, and the rest of them had been manually shut off by the firefighters working inside the building. This is standard operating procedure. We use water to fight fire, and water is a conductor, so a good fire officer will always make sure that the utilities are off before water is applied to any fire. In some cases, the actual electric meter is pulled off from the outside of the house, and in others, the breakers are just shut off. But the fact that only a few of the breakers are tripped is our first clue as to where the fire may have started, or at least it could have been. As fire burns through the plastic insulation of a wire, eventually the positive and negative wires touch, and they short out the breakers. Typically, this happens first in the area with the most damage, which in most cases is the point of origin of the fire. But unfortunately, in his testimony, DeHart has never asked which breakers were tripped and where the wires led to. Next, DeHart notes that he found two metal gas cans in a loft above the garage. The cans were removed from the scene and they were both empty when they were found. In the testimony, Smith jumps right from there to the return trip that occurred eight days later. And the purpose was to remove all debris from the house so that he could look at the floor. He's looking for what we call pour patterns, areas where flammable liquids were poured onto the floor to start the fire. And they're not hard to spot, usually. If you remember back to fifth grade science, heat tends to go up, and therefore the floor would be the last thing to burn. In fact, in most cases, it doesn't burn. In rare instances where it does is when something called a flashover occurs. And that's when everything in the room reaches its ignition temperature at the same time, resulting in an almost explosive incident. But in those cases, the entire floor would be charred. Flashovers don't leave patterns like pouring gasoline on a floor does. On the return trip, a backhoe was used to remove the remaining walls of the house so that investigators could work safely inside. Then they used the backhoe to carefully help remove layers of the rubble so that they could sift through what was left piece by piece. And DeHart says that there were 15 to 20 investigators working on the scene that day, some from the fire department and some from the sheriff's department. And then, 18 pages into the testimony, Smith asked DeHart if he was able to develop an opinion as to the cause of the fire. And DeHart quickly corrects him and says, quote, both fires. He considers the house fire and the wheelbarrow fire to be separate. Smith asks him why he considers them to be two different fires, and Charlie explains that due to the distance between and the lack of any indication of fire between the two, he determined that the house and the wheelbarrow were set separately. He then begins to break down his findings on the house fire. He says that he was able to rule out any accidental causes. 
he discovered two different areas of origin. One was just inside the kitchen area where the stairs lead into the house from the garage. And the other was at the bottom of the stairs that led to the upstairs bedrooms near the front door. And before I move on to the wheelbarrow, I want to point something out. After looking at the photos and reading DeHart's report, I have no doubt that he's absolutely right about the two points of origin on the first floor. However, I also think it's important to note that we have no way of knowing if there were more points of origin upstairs. Since the entire upstairs was burned and collapsed onto the lower floor, it would be absolutely impossible to know if there were any more ignition points up there. And later in the testimony, DeHart confirms just that. The wheelbarrow was also determined to be intentionally set. And again here, DeHart uses the process of elimination and determined that there were no natural or accidental causes that were possible. The basic process that we go through is to first to determine a point of origin and then to determine the cause. You're looking for a heat source usually. A good example of an accidental fire would be the actual very first fire that I personally investigated. I found the point of origin to be a corner of the garage. In that same area, I found a burned-up salamander-type kerosene heater. Right in front of it was a shelf full of clothing that was nearly completely consumed, but the salamander heater wasn't plugged in. So at that point, I had my point of origin and a potential heat source. I then interviewed the homeowner and had him walk me through his day. He told me that he'd been working on his car in the garage and he had that heater running. When he was done, he unplugged it and pushed it into the corner. Pretty easy to figure out that the heater itself was still hot and it ignited the clothing. But in Becky's case, there is no heat source, which means that an outside heat source had to have been applied to her body. Something like a match or a lighter, and most likely an accelerant to get things started. DeHart testifies that he couldn't pinpoint a point of origin on Becky's body, but he leans towards the left side of her torso primarily because that's the part that sustained the most damage, indicating that it burned the longest. But with that being said, it's all but impossible to actually know where on her body the fire actually started. The damage in that area, in my opinion, probably has a lot more to do with where the most accelerant was poured or pooled. Next, Smith shifts his attention back to the house. DeHart testifies that based on the poor patterns on the floor and the amount of damage, including a hole burned through the floor near the front door, he believed that an accelerant was used to start the fire in the two locations. He said, quote, It was more than likely gasoline. He also points out that one of the gas cans in the garage was, quote, left in the walkway, which, quote, sparked his interest. I don't think that there was a pun intended there, but in any case, well played. He goes on to say that he checked the house and wheelbarrow with a gas detection meter, and it did not indicate any flammable liquids, which he was not surprised by, and neither am I. Both of these fires burned hot and for a long period of time. Eventually, all the fuel will be consumed, and there just won't be any more gas to detect. In addition to that, the firefighters were using Class A foam to fight the fire, which further breaks down flammable liquids. He also says that he swabbed Becky's body with a gauze pad and placed the pad in the body bag with her. He then sent the pad to a lab for analysis, and it came back undetermined as to whether or not flammable liquids were present. And again, even with the inconclusive test, his opinion is that some sort of accelerant was used to ignite the body, and I agree with this conclusion. Cross-examination was lengthy and didn't accomplish a whole lot. 
There was a lot of focus on the gas cans, how many there were, where were they found, how much gas was in them, etc. Most were empty or maybe 20% full by estimation. Robert's attorney, Jeff Moore, seemed to indicate that the police never collected the cans as evidence. We already know that DeHart directed them to collect the pen, and they didn't. And in this testimony, Moore asked DeHart if he directed the police to collect the gas cans, specifically the can that was found in the middle of the garage floor. He says that he did, but he doesn't know if that was done or not. The sheriff's department did all of the evidence collection, not him. And speaking of evidence collection, DeHart also notes there were only two or three deputies on the scene when he noticed the pen by the wheelbarrow. Everyone else hadn't arrived yet. The biggest thing that I learned from Charlie DeHart's testimony has to do with criminal sophistication. Think for a minute about how you would handle covering up this crime scene. Try to put yourself in the mind of the killers. You just shot two people to death, and now you want to torch the house using gasoline to cover it up. Think about where you'd pour it. Just think for a second. I think that the most likely thing that people would do would be to pour the gas on the bodies and most likely pour it all over the house. I've seen it in many occasions. That's usually what happens when someone torches the house with gasoline. Most people don't understand how fire spreads and they think that they need to put the accelerant all over the house to get it to burn. But in this case, we see only two ignition points both small and strategically located, not on the bodies, not splashed all over the house. We have one pattern poured just inside the open door to the garage. According to Tim Summerlee, the overhead door was open as well, which would create a draft. And secondly, we have gas poured right at the foot of the steps that go upstairs. Tim saw the fire coming out of the upstairs window. With the garage door open and the upstairs window open, That's actually the perfect place to start the fire. There would be a perfect draft sucking the fire from the downstairs, up the stairs, and to that window. So these offenders started two small fires, small enough not to be seen by any of the neighbors at first, but they started them in locations that were sure to spread and consume the entire house. In my opinion, this is a pretty big indicator that we're dealing with criminally sophisticated, probably mature offenders. I'll even double down on what I said a few weeks ago regarding knowing the response times. Whoever did this either got really lucky or they had a pretty damn good idea of how fire spreads and how emergency responses work. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Next up, we're going to move on to Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. In March of 2015, investigators brought Charlie DeHart in to question him about his findings. Nearly nine years had gone by at this point. Primarily, they wanted to know more about Becky and how long she had been burning before her body was extinguished. And in this interview, we also get a good explanation of the testing that was done for flammable liquids. Here's a portion of his 2015 interview. This is a year before the final arrests were made. And I say final arrests because Robert and Christian were first arrested in 2014. The charges were dropped. We'll get into that in another episode. For now, here's DeHart's interview. And even just to clarify, even if we were just looking at a minimum maximum, like it had, like your opinion, it was a minimum of a certain amount of minutes, but it's also your opinion that it couldn't, it couldn't have been longer than this amount of minutes or hours. That, that's even sufficient to it. Yeah, hours... Hours really going to be pushing it. Um, she has a lot of body damage where it's, it's burned. So she did burn for quite a while, but we're only going to burn as long as the fuel. There's nothing in there that's going to sustain the fire other than the actual fuel itself. Okay. At the most, we're looking at an hour. Okay. the amount of damage she has. And it could even be less than that. Max one hour. Okay. If. Okay. And, and when you say, okay, well, let's, if we're putting max on an hour, where would we put minimum? Or is that not really? Um, it would be hard to put a minimum on it. I mean, it depends on the amount of fuel and stuff that was that was poured on her. Okay. Would it be safe to say that it had burned it for a minimum of five minutes? Yeah. Uh, expanding that out, 15 minutes? Or is that we starting getting into a gray area? No, I, I would say she, she probably had to burn for at least 20 minutes to cause the amount of damage she's got. Okay. If we're down to the bone in some of the areas and stuff like that. Okay. And, and of course, this is all uh, based on um, not knowing how much accelerant that we're talking about that was used. But it is your opinion that an accelerant Correct. was used? Yes. Okay. And we reviewed the Department of Justice report inside your report. Uh, that is uh, physical evidence submission form. Um, this is... DOJ number RI 06009062-03. Basically, in summary, um, this this report here shows Natalie Cunningham and Bruce County Sheriff's Department submitted the following evidence to the laboratory on December 4, 2006, item 110, barcode 0753201, a fluid sample collected from wheelbarrow containing Becky Friedley. Examination, a sample... I sampled a small portion of the liquid from item 110 and examined an extract, an extract of the liquid by gas uh, chromatography, mass spectrometry, GCMS, for the presence of ignitable liquid residues. I compared the resulting chromatographic and mass spectral data to data from the laboratory reference collection. There were no ignitable liquid residues identified in the liquid sample. Item 110 will be returned to the submitting agency. The extract of the original liquid and the subsample taken from the original evidence will be released to the submitting agency. Um, 
That is one DOJ report. A second DOJ report, which addresses the gauze pad to collect vapors from the victim, barcode 053190, and uh, also the KPAC bag and gauze pad control sample. Um, in this report, it says that uh, the Department of Justice uh, laboratory examiner collected the vapors from the gauze pad from the victim and examined them by gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, the presence of ignitable liquid residues, um, collected vapors from the control pads, and uh, examined them by the same manner. And uh, the, if I'm reading this correctly, the um, the summary says, I cannot conclusively determine if the substance detected on the pads from the victim could have been from an inedible liquid or from the K-Pack bag packaging. So in layman's term, what I understand this report is, and tell me if you agree, is that on the fluid sample, um, there were no ignitable liquid residues identified. And on the gauze pad that was collected, there is, but there is also in the K-Pack bag for the control sample. So the, the uh, analyzer is unable to determine whether it came from the, the K-Pack bag or the gauze, or the gauze, correct, or from the this, this yeah, or from the gauze. Um, so based on that, it's your opinion though that even though the lab did not identify that there was an accelerant that was used, and it's just at this point undetermined what that accelerant correct is. Okay, yeah. and and reason I bring that up is because your opinions about the minimum and maximum timeline are you're you're stifled in the fact that. We don't, and you don't know how much was accelerant was used. More accelerant would cause the fire to burn longer. Is that your opinion? Correct. Less accelerant would cause the fire to burn less. Right. Um, but what we do have to work with is the photos of the victim, Beckery Friedley. And based on what you're seeing there, if I understand what you're saying correctly, um, she would have burned for probably at least 20 minutes and probably uh, no, no more, than, more an hour, than an hour, give or take, a few minutes right. here or there. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, is it your opinion that if we go on this theory that an accelerant was used and somebody uh, had thrown a, had used some sort of ignition source to light the accelerant or to light her body, um, is it your, is it your opinion or not your opinion that, that that could have smoldered for a long time prior to combusting or would there would have been a very immediate, maybe I'm not using the right words because I'm not an arson investigator and I should be careful, but what I'm getting at is that if somebody lit this wheelbarrow, would it, have, would it have immediately turned into flames and burning? Or is there, a very, is there any possibility that it would have just smoldered as a small fire and then grew into a larger fire at some point down the road? Now, with this situation, we would have had instantaneous fire. Okay, instantaneous fire. That's probably the word I was looking for. So there's really not a possibility that it would have, you know, small little flames just kind of uh, with the accelerant or with something, and then and then 10 minutes down the road, 30 minutes down the road, an hour down the road, then it, bam, turned into an, an instantaneous fire. No, it no. just happened quickly. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be an instantaneous fire, and then you're going to have that smoldering and stuff afterwards when the fuel's burned off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the smoldering that we're talking about, how long maximum do you think, based on the evidence that you've seen so far in the pictures you've seen, that that would have gone on for, and therefore when uh, the witness, Tim, Tim Summerlee, saw her and she was not smoldering, how long of a time frame do you think that could have gone on for, given all the information that you have? Smoldering, if you will. Uh, maybe an hour. That could have gone on for an hour. Okay. Total. From the total time it started... 
to where you're smoldering. Okay. Uh, from the time it was ignited. Right. Okay. From the time gotcha. of smoldering, uh, maybe an hour at the most. Okay. All right. So we're 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 saying basically that in the uh, early uh, burning for um, at least twenty minutes, maximum of an hour in that time period, it that slowly would, dies off would, and starts. That would include this bolt this morning. Okay. All right. In anywhere in this report, is there a uh, opinion of what the uh, inedible liquid was, or is that undetermined? That was undetermined. I believe. Um, that kind of addresses those those foremost questions that we had. Is there anything that, since this has occurred, or um, now that we're talking about it, or since you had a chance to review uh, your reports and some pictures, is there anything that you want to add, or anything that you think that maybe uh, you need to clarify? Or um, no, but I mean, we could go to the books. And maybe, I mean, if you wanted to, we could do some testing to see how long that takes to burn the body down that. How would that, walk me through how that testing would take place. Is that textbook testing or is that actual physical experiment? Uh, we, we could do, if we could get some gels or something, you know, similar to the body, we could we could test it, physically test it. So, but then we could book test by, you know, going, I could go through some of my reference material later on and, we can figure out what the time frame it is it takes to get so much charring right. to the human body. Right. And, okay. And, and then I, we still have a variance, though, because we're not sure what the actual combustible liquid is. Right. Or the quantity of used. Or, or quantity. But if we, uh, if, if it, I, what you're saying is that down the road, if um, the district attorney wanted to look at that, that's, that's an option. But yeah. we would be making some uh, assumptions based on type of liquid amount. and quantity of liquid. Correct. Okay. So, book-wise, uh, I can look through the books and stuff and see the temperatures and the time frame it takes to char the body down to the bone. Okay. Is that something that um, you'd need some time on that we'd have to get back to you later on? Um, I could probably get through it um, and have that information later on. Okay. DeHart clearly wasn't capable of providing the answers that the investigator was looking for in this interview. He gave a range of time of Becky burning for a minimum of 20 minutes, and then an hour-long maximum time frame, which is really nothing more than a guess. But I also say that I disagree with DeHart on one point. He said that the body could only burn as long as there is still accelerant present to be burned. But as I've explained before, that's not actually the case. It's pretty well known in fire investigation that bodies create their own fuel once they're heated to a certain point. The fat on your body will actually render into a liquid oil, which is incredibly flammable. I don't mean to be insensitive or gross, but to understand what I'm talking about, think about grilling a fatty steak or a pork chop. When you first put it on the grill, you can easily control the flames below. But once the fat gets hot enough to render and drip down, the fire will get out of control as long as there's sufficient oxygen. The same is true of a burning body. Our fat is no different. So what I believe happened is that an accelerant was used to start the body on fire. For the first several minutes, just the fuel itself was burning as it was absorbed by the clothes. So then the clothing begins to burn. That sustained heat then caused the fat from the torso to begin rendering and it became its own fuel. 
At that point, you have a cycle that can't end until all of that fat is consumed or somebody puts out the fire. Investigators weren't satisfied with the heart's vague window of time, and in order to make an arrest stick, they needed to know the exact point in time the fire began. You'll learn why later. So, they brought in an expert on burned bodies, Dr. Elaine Pope, for a testimony right after a short break. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dr. Pope's testimony begins with her describing her experience and credentials. She says that she consults in burned body cases. She has previously worked at the ME's office in Norfolk, Virginia for six years before moving to Knoxville, Tennessee due to family matters. She describes herself as a forensic scientist and or a forensic anthropologist. She says that her specialty is burned human remains. Quote, particularly the human body as it relates to the documentation of burn patterns and how different tissue types such as skin, fat, and muscle, particularly bone as well, respond to the exposure of heat, damage from heat, and from fire and structural fires, vehicular fires, and outdoor fires. End quote. She spends a bit of time listing out all of her qualifications, but you can read all that for yourself in her testimony. We're going to get right into her findings. Dr. Pope's opinions in this case are based off of reading reports from Charlie DeHart and Detective Ramirez, crime scene photos, and autopsy photos. She was not present in 2006 when the crime occurred. Based on the work history she gave, I would assume that she was probably still in undergrad school at the time of the murders. Remember, this is 12 years later. So she's reading reports, looking at photos, and comparing all of that to documented experiments that she's performed over the years. In the experiments that she's drawing her conclusions from, she burned cadavers that were fully clothed using a mixture of diesel fuel and gasoline. She explains that the purpose for the mixture is that adding diesel causes the gasoline to be a little less volatile. Dr. Pope is spot on with her description of the progression of such a fire. She says that when the fire is ignited, you'll have large flames for one to two minutes. By then, the flammable liquids mostly burned away and you'll have a much smaller fire which would be the remainder of the gas mixture and the clothing burning. She says that the clothing retains the gas for longer than if the body was naked. In her experience, a naked body in similar circumstances would produce a fire for about two minutes, and the fuel would burn itself out as it's consumed. But Becky was clothed, which is why the fire burned for longer. She goes on to say that the next layer to burn is the skin, which doesn't really burn. What actually happens is that the skin begins to shrink with heat exposure, and it splits and exposes the next layer, which she describes as the, quote, the key in all of this. The next layer is subcutaneous fat. She goes on to describe the process that I explained earlier. Fat melts and liquefies and becomes fuel. 
Dr. Pope explains that without the fat burning, the fire would go out in one to two minutes. That's how long it takes for the gas to burn off. After the two-minute mark, now the fat is the fuel. Next, Smith asks her about the height of the flames at different points during the fire. He's trying to establish at what point Tim Summerlee saw flames and when Captain Williams saw them, working towards a timeline. Dr. Pope says that in her experience, at first you'll have a very big flame, up to five feet above the body as the gas is burning. But by the two-minute mark, the flames would be less than a foot tall, even just a few inches, and far less intense. At that point, the fire is not putting off much heat, just enough to cause the skin to continue splitting and the fat to render, which keeps it going. She says that under these circumstances, where the deceased is in a solid surface that is catching the liquefied fat and keeping it close to the body, She's seen cadavers burn for up to two hours, depending on how much fat is on the body. Becky was certainly not overweight by any means, but she did still have plenty of fat left on her body to burn when the fire was extinguished. Dr. Pope notes that Becky still had quite a bit of fat on her stomach and thighs and what she calls her love handles that hadn't burned yet. I apologize, this is very graphic, but I need to point out that the crime scene photos show that her left arm chest, and breast tissue appear to be completely consumed by the fire. In fact, you can actually see right through her ribs into some internal organs. Dr. Pape then delivers her estimated time that Becky's body was burning, based on the consumption of clothing, fat, and internal organs, paired with the amount of fat that was not consumed by the fire, she says that she estimates that Becky had been burning for approximately 20 minutes on the short end before the fire was extinguished. This next part's pretty huge. It's actually shocking to me, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. She says that the upper range, meaning the longest amount of time that the body could have been burning before it was extinguished, is 30 minutes. Now let's backtrack that time. We have some well-established known times to work with. According to the fire department dispatch log, Captain Williams and his crew arrived on the scene at 10.12 p.m. He did his walk around 360 immediately, and that's when he came across Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. He radioed to dispatch, and that time is documented at 10.14 p.m. to tell them that he had found a body burning in a wheelbarrow. Then, in his testimony, he says that he ordered his men to extinguish her as his next course of action. I've been on these scenes and I know how these things work to get the hose out, get them completely stretched out, get the pumping gear and start pumping. I'd say, best case scenario, two minutes later, her body's extinguished. Which would mean Becky's body was out and no longer burning by 10.16 p.m. at the earliest. According to Dr. Pope, the longest amount of time that her body could have been burning is 30 minutes. That's the absolute longest, and she actually says she kind of leans closer to 20 minutes, which means that her body was set on fire at 9.46 p.m. or later. And we believe that Tim Summerlee's call was the first to go into 911, which occurred at 9.51 p.m., and he was on the scene in less than five minutes. He lived right around the corner. And with this window of time provided by Dr. Pope, Becky's body was initially lit on fire between 9.46 and 9.56. Even if the fire was lit at 9.46, there still had to be a couple minutes to put the gas can somewhere, since it wasn't found by the wheelbarrow, and get in a vehicle and flee the scene. Tim literally just missed the killers by a couple minutes at most. 
Dr. Pope's testimony goes on for another 70 pages. We have crossed by both attorneys, redirect, recross, and so on. Her testimony is posted on our website if you want to read it all, but I'm going to stop right here because nothing changes the science that the doctor used here. She has burned hundreds of bodies and has documented exactly what they look like at different times during the burning. Now, I'm usually pretty critical of any fire expert that tries to put a time onto a fire. And admittedly, I was pretty skeptical of Dr. Pope at first, just based on my own experience and education. In a house fire, you can't predict time because there are too many variables. Draft, contents, etc. I can show you five houses that burn for the same amount of time, and they would all have varying degrees of damage. There's just no way to put a time on it. But Dr. Pope's science is solid as far as I can tell. She's done multiple experiments under these exact same conditions. There aren't nearly the amount of variables to think about, and according to her, the results are very consistent. 20 to 30 minutes. So now, what does that tell us? I actually believe that Becky's body was lit on fire before the house was ignited. And this is why. For starters, and this is really is the big one, there's no gas can or other container found anywhere near her body. I think that if she was lit up last, the can would be discarded right there or thrown into the fire to avoid any fingerprints. Now, the only bugaboo with that theory is that if it was a plastic gas container, technically it could have melted inside the fire in the house, although DeHardness team didn't find any remnants of a melted plastic container. But now let's add to that some timing. The first 911 call was at 9.51 p.m., and dispatch was at 9.53 p.m. There were four calls made reporting the fire that night, all right around the same time. It seems like people all noticed the flames coming out of the upstairs window almost immediately. Remember, Captain Williams said three calls came in right away, boom, 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 which tells me that there was very likely another point of ignition upstairs. I say that based on Tim Summerlee's account of looking into the door through the garage and seeing light but no flames. The fire from the base of the stairs wouldn't likely have traveled up the stairs, down the hall, and into the bedroom and grown that big at that point. If that was the case, I think that he likely would have seen flames glowing in all the upstairs windows. That would be a huge fire to get from the bottom of the stairs all the way out the window on the other side of the house without the entire house being consumed at that point. And let's not forget that there was a pour pattern right in front of the door that he was looking through, and yet he didn't see any flames, which up until now really didn't make much sense. So I think, and this is just a theory, that based on everything we know at this point, the offenders never lit that spot on fire. So I know this is all very confusing, so let me break it down into a hypothetical sequence of events. It's just hypothetical, but I'm trying to help you guys track where my brain's going right now. So I think it's possible that John and Vicky were shot. Becky either walks in on the murders, or she was upstairs in her bedroom at the time and came downstairs to investigate the gunshots. However this shakes out, she gets chased out the back door and is killed near the wheelbarrow. The offender puts her body in the wheelbarrow, grabs a can of gas, and lights her on fire. The first two minutes create a fire five feet tall, like Dr. Pope said. It's possible that the neighbors saw this from a distance, and this is when the first calls to the fire department happen. Remember, according to Captain Williams, 
There were three calls to the fire department, bang, 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 and then the dispatch call came in a couple minutes later. People in Pinion Pines are super skittish about fire after the last big wildfire, so they could have just seen this big, burning, five-foot-tall flame from her body and called right then. Well, after the big flame starts on Becky's body, then the offenders turn to the house. They carry the gas can into the house, and first they go upstairs. There, they open the window to the bedroom and pour the gas in the room and ignite it. This creates a huge fire, just like Dr. Pope described with the wheelbarrow, and it's shooting out the window. So either more calls occur at this point, or this could be the first call, I don't know. But I lean more towards that these were more calls, that the first calls probably came in when Becky got lit on fire. Then our offenders, once the upstairs is burning, move back downstairs. In this scenario, I think one person's probably outside keeping a lookout. They get to the bottom of the stairs, pour gas all over the floor, and light the second fire. There was no evidence of trailers being used, meaning they didn't pour the gas a long way into another room and light it like that. There's no patterns to indicate that. So my guess is they're using matches. They're lighting matches and flicking them towards the fire. Which, and this is going to come into the next scenario here that I'm about to talk about, if you've ever done that when you're lighting a bonfire or something, it doesn't work every time. A lot of times the match goes out before it's ignited. So getting back to the scenario, they get to the bottom of the stairs, they pour gas all over the floor and light that second fire, and then they move to the door to the garage. I think one offender starts to pour the gasoline, but gets interrupted. The lookout sees lights coming or maybe cars approaching. Something's happening. They've already lit two fires in the house, plus they've already lit Becky on fire. They've poured the gas. Maybe they're trying to flick some matches and it's not working, or maybe they didn't even get that far. The lookout says somebody's coming, and they bail on setting that last fire in the doorway. So there's gas on the floor, but they don't ignite it. They drop the gas can in the middle of the garage, and they get out of there. Minutes later, maybe even seconds later, Tim gets to the house, and he looks in the door, and he sees lights in the house that are coming from the fire back by the staircase, but no fire in the open door. After he returns to the road, the fire eventually reaches the gas that was already poured, which has now created a huge plume of vapors, and it ignites. And in that scenario, there would be enough fumes that the ignition would be almost explosive, which would create a big draft, which could be what caused the garage door to close. Don't hold me to that hypothesis. I'm literally just sitting here trying to figure out a scenario that fits what we know in real time as I'm writing this. It can certainly change as we move along. But I have to admit, I was working a theory based around Becky being lit on fire last this entire time. And I've never been able to make sense of why she would be lit on fire so far away from the house if the offenders had already lit the house on fire. Whether she came from the back and she was on a hike or she interrupted something happening inside, I just have not been able to piece together a sequence of events where that works. But in my mind's eye now, it makes sense to me that if we have a criminally sophisticated offender and there was a physical struggle, that their first thought would be to burn Becky's body. And the fact that we have a gas can sitting what DeHart called the walkway in the garage and we have no gas can anywhere near Becky's body... I really think that she was ignited before the house. I don't think that they would walk the gas can back into the garage and still just set it there in the middle of the garage and then leave. 
I think that if they carried the gas can back up to the house because they were worried about some forensics, they would toss the can into the house. All of that is just a hypothesis. Think about it, critique it, add your own thoughts, and let's discuss it on the fan page. But one thing that we know for certain and need to remember is that the body was lit on fire no earlier than 9.46 p.m. And even if she was lit on fire as the killer's last act, if I'm completely wrong, still, the earliest they could have fled the scene would be roughly 9.48 p.m. And that time is going to become very, very important later. And lastly, I have a favor to ask you. If you get time today or tomorrow, go on to our social media. We can be found at Truth Justice Pod on all platforms. I'm going to post a picture of something that was found in the fire, buried in the rubble near Vicky's body. I want you to look at it and tell me what you think it is. And I'll tell you what I think it is on the Friday follow-up. Until then, I want to wish all of you mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day. You all deserve the best. I love you all. And I'll talk to you again on Friday. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website truthandjusticepod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. 
I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.